You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Today, it's really only about one thing, the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond near 52-week highs. That's about it in terms of the market action. We've got Peter Bookvar, the CIO of Bleakley Advisory Group, and the editor of the book report to break that all down with us. Welcome back to RBDB, Peter. Thanks, Ted, for having me. You know, not a very interesting day today uh, in the markets, uh, in the equity sector. I'm just looking at the indices, how they closed. You know, the Dow up barely, NASDAQ down a bit, uh, S&P down. But, you know, the real action was in bonds. And it makes me think about inflation and, and your calls on inflation. What are you thinking about, uh, given the price action that you saw today? Well, inflation expectations were were little changed, but that's after jumping again on Friday, uh, where the ten-year break-even broke out to a, a fresh eight-year high, and uh, the five-year break-even is just about the highest since '08. Uh, the nominal change in interest rates today has the long end sort of creeping back up to that 175 uh, upper end of of what's been this range. Uh, I do think we break out of this range, but maybe just not yet as we sort of digest this move. Uh, I think the, the market is is sort of sniffing out, of course, uh, this grand reopening that we're going to have is now we're vaccinating 3 million people a day and, and, and what that means. I actually, on the way to work today, saw a now hiring sign in front of a, a local restaurant. So I think they're all getting ready for for this for this sort of transition, but at the same time, we've had to deal with uh, this sort of third or fourth wave, I don't even know what number it is, in Europe, and worries about uh, these extra variants in Brazil. But I'm of the opinion, as long as we keep uh, vaccinating more people every single day, even though obviously in some parts of the world, it's going rather slowly, uh, that we are uh, moving past the worst of this, uh, and that Europe will be the caboose here, of course, uh, but it will eventually get to its destination. You know, when you talk about Europe, uh, immediately it makes me think about the narrative, especially in bonds. This is how I'm thinking about it. So we had this range, uh, we, you know, we were actually below, uh, um, on the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, below 1%. We get we traded into the range between 1 and 150, broke out to the upside, uh, you know, we were well towards the north end of the range where we are now, again, between 150 and 175. And then suddenly last week, everyone was like, the third wave, the third wave, uh, bad things. And it seemed like, uh, you know, it, it, it took a hit, the whole uh, concept that we were, you know, going to go up in terms of the yields. But now here we are back again at 171. Is it that the markets now, uh, they've forgotten about Europe or what's what's going on there? Well, they haven't forgotten, but they know that, again, as, as, as slow as the rollout of the vaccine has been, they know that it's happening 
every day, every week, every month, more and more people are getting vaccinated. So there's that um, that light that people are, are, are pointing to that, yeah, it, it's we're having these setbacks and we're having to deal with it. But just look at Merkel last week where she announced that she was going to call for a five-day holiday around Easter and people were revolted. And then she quickly backtracked. And the, the, the world wants to open. And yes, the vaccine is going to help that process. But as, if the German people are any indication, it, it's going to happen even with a slow rollout. And even the UK, which has done a, a very good job of rolling out its vaccine, you know, they announced more steps to do that. And so I, I think people see uh, where we're headed, and even with the bumps along the road. And, uh, and I think that's why the bond market is adjusting. I mean, the bond market, we talked about this last time when, with, with Jim Bianco, is that the bond market is now uh, setting interest rates rather than having the Fed bully the market into where they want interest rates to be. Right. You know, underlying all of this really is the concept, it's inflation expectations uh, and 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 potential inflation coming uh, going forward. The first thing that I'm thinking about is your note about the Dallas Fed uh, and the numbers that came out there. What, what were you seeing in terms of the data today? So one of the things, so there, there are differences of opinions on whether the inflation we're seeing is transitory or not. And some people say, well, a, a deciding factor of that will be how do labor costs respond to uh, the recovery and, and the current rise in, in prices in a variety of different things. And then on the other hand, you can say, well, I don't recall there being a labor cost push in Venezuela to explain the inflation spike there. I don't recall labor cost inflation being a main reason why Zimbabwe had major inflation. So I don't necessarily think you need that. However, in the Dallas Manufacturing Index, which you, which you mentioned, uh, we do have uh, a bunch of different quotes from companies in different industries that are talking about higher labor costs. And they specifically talked about how the recent extension on un unemployment benefits and the enhancement of them via the, the $300 extra that will last through September is resulting in people that uh, are probably sitting on that uh, rather than jumping into the labor force. So while people talk about the 10 million jobs that haven't been recaptured, uh, I do think what we're going to see is a even lower labor force participation participation rate on this recovery, which means that it will be even more challenging to bring people off the sidelines, and it will take higher labor costs in order to do so. So I mentioned that a restaurant on my way to work that I passed that says now hiring, I wonder how much they're going to pay to hire uh, since now they're competing against very generous uh, unemployment benefits, which they didn't have to compete with last year because they were closed and were just maybe doing delivery. Now they want to reopen and uh, the, the level of benefits now uh, is highly competitive uh, to, to lower wage income uh, that these people are going to have to, as I said, compete with. 
Well, you know, labor costs are one thing, and then also there are the input costs, especially in manufacturing. Where are you on that in terms of input costs rising and whether or not that's transitory or something that could last longer? Because, you know, at the back end of this uh, interview, I'm going to speak to uh, Trevor Hall. He is an expert in uh, the mining stocks, and I think he's looking at it as a secular trend. Well, on the commodity side, I, I do believe that the underinvestment that we've seen for the last many years uh, is now catching up to us. Uh, I, I don't recall in the massive number of SPACs over the past year uh, seeing copper SPACs or nickel SPACs or crude oil natural gas SPACs. I mean, maybe there was a few that I didn't catch, but you know that was not really the fancy of investors. Uh, I mean, you take take oil and gas CEOs see what's going on around the world. They see every single day there's somebody up there, out there that wants to uh, shift to renewables. So you're not going to get a, a massive wave of investment in, in that area of energy and crude and natural gas because they're, they're worried about uh, you know, the secular, secular trends that are, that are running against them and they'd rather run their businesses for cash. You can't just snap your finger and bring a copper mine on. Uh, it, that takes years. So copper being a very important industrial metal right now in the context of, of where the world is headed in terms of renewables and, and, and so on, it's going to take time to bring these mines on stream. So I do think that that has a multi-year uh, tailwind to it. Uh, to your other question about supply chains, yeah, I guess at some point, supply chains around the world, which you, first, you saw the dress rehearsal back last year when supermarkets had trouble refilling their shelves because you obviously had a large demand spike as people didn't go out to restaurants, they ate at home. Uh, and then of course you had a lot of trouble on the supply side and being able to produce meats and, and, and so on. And then, uh, so that, that may normalize faster, but I don't necessarily think it's going to happen so quickly because I think supply chains have been disrupted for both cyclical and secular reasons, secular reasons, because companies are diversifying supply chains, some out of China into other places that it's just it's easier said than done. And then, of course, you have these logistic costs, which have added another layer of inflation because everything that's produced ends up on a ship, a plane, a truck, uh, 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 and, and, and a container on, on, on the ocean. So that's going to take time. And I followed you know, dry bulk shipping for a while, and I followed uh, the container shipping uh, industry for a while. And there's been massive rationalization in the container shipping market. Uh, the dry bulk business has been a complete disaster for years. So there's been a dearth. So in response, there's been a dearth of supply of a lot of these uh, dry bulk uh, ships and container ships. You look at the, the trucking industry, at least in the U.S., the two years prior to COVID, you've had a slew, actually maybe more than one year, a slew of bankruptcies that put took a lot of capacity offline. So I think the logistics and transportation costs are going to remain with us longer than we think, uh, while the supply chain, how much that normalizes when people fully go back to work, probably quicker, but it's something that I'm watching. So I, I don't I'm not confident enough in saying, is it going to go to 2022, 2023? I'm not sure yet, but uh, we are in, in the heart of, of these disruptions right now. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So essentially, we have multiple sources of potential inflationary pressure from labor to supply chains to commodity prices. And these aren't things that are just about a base effect from the shutdown that we had last year. It's something that you're saying is going to last, let's say, you know, six months, 12 months, 24 months, long enough that it could have an impact on inflation expectations and also on interest rates. Um, how far do you think interest rates can go in that kind of environment? Well, before I answer that, I also want to talk about the services side, which mm -hmm. is part of this aggregate inflation story. And I mentioned transportation costs, obviously, is a service. We've already seen that. The question is, is to what extent do the other uh, chunkier areas of the service side of the economy, do they start to see higher prices? We're obviously already seeing airline price increases. Uh, hotel companies are having leverage. But the other two are really rents, imputed rents, and healthcare. Healthcare is going to do what it's going to do regardless of, of, of any of this. Uh, and that'll probably see continued persistent increases in healthcare, but that really only shows up in, in CPI. Healthcare and PCE are mostly Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates, so those prices will be whatever the government wants them to be. On the rent side, the question is, is when do the current 10% plus annual increases in home prices start to bleed into the imputed rents that show up in PCE and CPI? And you could chart over the last 20 years that the rise and decline in home prices as where they go leads those imputed rents. So I'm of the belief that that is now going to follow. We saw short rental declines in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, and other big cities as people went to the burbs and the kids moved in with their parents. Uh, you can be sure a lot of these kids are going to be, and I call them kids, but call them uh, you know, in their 20s and early 30s. Uh, they're going to be going back to cities, they're, or at least they're going to be moving out of their parents' apartments uh, or houses. So I do think there will be another inflection higher uh, in in rents, uh, both for that reason and, as I mentioned, capturing the rise in home prices, that if you get that combined with what we're seeing on the good side, if that were to continue, then you get both supply uh, – I'm sorry, you both get both goods and services inflation that gets to your question of where do rates go on the upside in response to that. And I think that the, the 10 years is, is going north of 10, up 10, 2%. Uh, <laughs> already, I think maybe in the short term, we've probably seen most of the move, 90 basis points to call it 175 on the upside. I think the market's going to want to see where, how transitory uh, March and April and, and maybe May are going to be. And then we set ourselves up for the next leg. And after that, when people realize it's not so transitory. So north of 2%, I know that's not necessarily a bold call now with, with us being at 170, but I was been saying 2% for a while, uh, even when the 10-year was one one and a quarter. Now, past that, it gets really tricky here because I do think you get north of two and and things start to to to, to break in the markets. And that uh while the markets have tolerated this rise in rates so far outside of adjustments in tech, I'm not so sure how much it will tolerate a higher, uh, a 10-year north of two. And then that gets into the question of, well, how does the Fed respond? Uh, how does an over-indebted economy respond to this move higher in rates, uh, the higher cost of capital that companies are going to have to endure? 
we, we have to see. If at two, everything's still fine, then I, I really believe that the bond market is going gonna, is gonna to push the limits, is going to push markets to the point where it will negatively respond. There's not going to be uh, a Goldilocks scenario here where we're going to get this recovery, rise rates, everything's going to be fine. Uh, I, I, I do think we're going to reach that uh, a breaking point of some sort, but just trying to figure out what that is. We saw that in the fourth quarter of 2018 when it was essentially a 2.5% Fed funds rate. And, and palacing was going to keep on going. That broke things. So it was really, we didn't know. Just like tapering QE was, yeah, it's going to be like watching paint dry, but eventually something, you were going to hit a wall at some point. And, and we saw that wall hit both in the fourth quarter of 2018 and also the fourth quarter of 2019 when the Fed basically started QE4 because they were worried that maybe we reached too low a point in reserves. So, um, Bottom line is the market's going to test the resolves in the markets, and I think it's going to push it to the point where uh, it will spill over, and then we'll see how the Fed responds to that. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense, what you're saying. The interesting bit about what you're saying when you use the term Goldilocks is it's almost as if uh, you know if uh, you can have rates that are low, and that's bad, because that shows that the economy is doing poorly, but then you can also have rates that are too high. Uh, because basically a lot of things break, as you put it. And there's some sort of sweet spot. We don't know how high rates can go before the breakage occurs. And, you know, you're trying to get into that Goldilocks environment, and you're saying that the breakage is going to happen. The markets will push the Fed to actually commit itself one way or the other based upon that breakage. Right, because uh, I, I probably said this before in Real Vision, is that we don't have normal economic cycles anymore. We have credit cycles. We have credit cycles that ebb and flow with the price of money. And because we're hugely dependent on credit, both at the government level, the household level, and the business level, and we're also very market dependent uh, with, with the intertwining of, of economic activity and the level of the markets, that the direction of interest rates is a huge determinant on where m markets should be priced and, and what the uh, economy is going to do. So, yeah, it's inevitable that you reach a, uh, a breaking point, I believe, if, if the long-end rates continue to rise. Of course, the Fed's going to do their best to, to keep short rates as low as possible for as long as possible, but that's becoming more irrelevant because, like I said, the market is really setting the price of money here. Uh, on the longer end, and is and, and the Fed is becoming you know less influential here. You, you know um, the interesting thing, uh, just going back to a, a much earlier in the conversation about Europe, is uh, the dollar index and also you know differentials in terms of what's going on in Europe, what's going on in the United States, and then all, thinking about emerging markets and the dollar. Because the way I'm thinking about it is the story that you're telling is, is look, you know, the markets are, 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 are we're going to open the economy eventually. OK, there's light at the end of the tunnel. We don't know how long the tunnel is going to be, but we now know because of the vaccine that the tunnel is of a, a, a finite length and we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but 
as things start to go up in terms of yields, that seems to be having an impact on the dollar. I'm looking at DXY, it's at almost 93. And then when you think about some of the emerging markets, it's even worse for the emerging markets in terms of the dollar impact. How does that play out in terms of, A, what do you think is going to happen? And B, what does that mean in terms of your asset allocation across different geographies? Well, I, I like to break down the dollar amongst different groups of currencies. Uh, it's very easy to look at Dixie and say, okay, the dollar's doing this, it's doing that. But you know, half the dollar index is the euro. So you get the euro right, you'll get the dollar index right. So the euro has weakened here a little bit, but 118 hasn't really weakened that much. But it is weakening because, as we talked about, Europe is, is obviously very slow with this vaccine rollout. I do think in the months ahead, when they catch up, you know, the, the euro will have its bid again. I mean, the problem with the dollar big picture, 30,000 feet, is the, the twin deficits, the fiscal deficit mm-hmm. and the trade deficit. Those are two inherent structural headwinds for the dollar. And that's why the dollar will continue on a secular basis, trend lower. In the short term, you know, it's going to have its bounce against the euro because of what's going on in Europe. But you know, the pound at 137, 138 hangs in pretty well because they're rolling out the vaccine pretty nicely. Canada, Canada is not doing a good job, but you know what? The Canadian dollar, one twenty-five, one twenty-six, you know that, that that's that's at a good level against the U.S. dollar. The dollar's not strong against the Canadian dollar. Dollar's not strong against the Mexican peso. The dollar's not really that strong against most of the Asian currencies. Yes, it's strong against the Turkish lira because of what we saw a couple of weeks ago with what Erdogan did in firing the head of the central bank. Yeah, it's traded well against the Brazilian real, but you know they can't get control of their virus, and now they're dealing with another variant and you know, all the political issues, Bolsonaro and, and, and so on. So uh, to me, the dollar's not necessarily really strong. It's just really responding to uh, weakness in, in, in some of these countries that's affecting it. It's trading okay against the yen here. Uh, but, you know, the yen goes back and forth between being a safe haven currency, uh, responding to this review by the Bank of Japan, uh, and, 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 and how they're going to sort of recalibrate their policy. So the, the yen is, is, I'm not sure what the yen is anymore. Uh, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out on a daily basis what it's trying to tell us. Uh, but I do think that this DXY move is really mostly euro. Uh, as I mentioned, dollar really hasn't bounced much against the pound slightly. It has, but nothing really that notable. Um, and, and I do think in the months to come, as the rest of the world sort of catches up to to our inoculation process is that uh, the dollar will then have to go back to dealing with the reality of a budget deficit, that there's no end in sight in its trajectory relative to GDP. And uh, we just saw the February goods uh, trade deficit that rose to a fresh record high. And Mm -hmm. uh, those will continue to be uh, secular headwinds for the dollar. So if I if I could wrap it up in terms of market action today and, and where your head is, you're still thinking about inflation expectations uh, being important. You're thinking about uh, interest rates going up and a whole host of reasons for underlying uh, inflation uh, trends to continue to have to bite, not just over the short term, but over the medium term. Yes. And I know that's it's definitely more of a consensus thought. So when, when everyone hops onto that bandwagon, it makes me want to just reassess and, 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 th- and decide whether uh, this trend is still there. Uh, I, I feel like I was on it early last year, 
Um, but I still look at, at, at the, the fundamentals behind it. And I still think that there's still a, a trade left here. I still think that energy stocks have more upside. I still think that agriculture stocks have more upside. I still think that precious metals are, are sort of being left for dead as, as, as people have responded to the rise in well, the slight rise in real rates of the 10 year, but five year real rates are near the lows. And this little bounce in the dollar, I call it little because 90 to 93 is, is not much of a bounce. Uh, uh, and, and yet maybe there's some, some, some Bitcoin related uh, sort of transition of funds, but I'm still with a believer that both can complement each other rather than one taking over the other. And uh, I still, when looking out over the years to come, I still believe that Asian markets are going to well outperform U.S. markets. And, and that's a long-term theme, and uh, nothing in the short term changes that belief. Well, good. Yeah, it's good to get an update on your views, given what's going on in the markets. I appreciate you coming back on, and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Ted. Always fun doing this with you. So to continue the conversation about these input costs and rising commodity costs, we have Trevor Hall, who is the host of Mining Stock Daily. Uh, that's at miningstockdaily.com. Trevor, welcome to Real Vision. Hey, Ed, it's a pleasure to uh, talk to you once again. Yes. Uh, you know, I've been on your podcast, and so it's great to have you uh, on here, especially on a day like today where we're thinking about people talking about a commodity super cycle. We're talking about input costs rising. You look at mining stocks and you look at the mining sector drilling down. So I want to talk to you about what you're seeing in the mining stocks right now, because uh, before this, you talked to me about things that we wouldn't normally talk about. Ten, you talked to me, I believe, about copper, and you also talked about gold and silver. Take your pick. How do you want to start? <laughs> Uh, let's 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 pick the most obvious poison poison that'd be precious metals. I mean, coming off what we saw out of Dallas, uh, the great inflation debate continues. You did see uh, manufacturing input supplies costs being uh, rising. Uh, so we'll start with inflation, and obviously, one of the best hedges against inflation historically has always been the yellow metal gold. Um, continues to be tied. The price of gold continues to be tied with yields. Uh, we're seeing a huge spike once again as we're recording in the 10-year uh, up to above 170, I believe, once again. And gold's getting pushed down close to just above 1,700 futures basis. Um, there's, We're wondering, to, curious if we're going to see kind of a bottoming here finally in the gold price after that big move last year. Uh, from new all-time highs, it's been a long consolidation downward trend, uh, eight months in the making now. Uh, but we'll see where this kind of its relationship with that 10-year and the yields continues to move. Uh, if the 10-year still sees a sell-off in rising yields, uh, I would assume to believe gold still has more downward to go. Uh, but I really focus on the miners. And if you talk about the gold miners, like there's this continued dialogue of miners into that value trade, rotating out of the growths, growth equities into value equities. Um, given the price of gold, gold miners don't need $2,000 gold to be profitable. I mean, they're incredibly profitable right now at $1,700 gold. 
uh, margins are continue to be improved anything above this. I mean, if you have an all-in sustaining cost anywhere from $1,000 an ounce to $1,200 an ounce, I mean, there's improved margins. Your biggest input cost to produce is typically energy. So your diesel and your oil, uh, you know, even though those have been rising for the last couple of weeks, they're still reasonable uh, costs. Uh, but, you know, back in six months ago when oil was really in turbulent mode, uh, those margins just continue to be improved. And so I would also make an I wouldn't really make an argument in that value trade that there's not many sectors providing as much value based on those production margins as gold miners are right now. On top and of that, there over for that matter. Uh, how's uh, what? What's the relationship in terms of gold miners versus silver miners in terms of who's better uh, value at, uh, given the dynamics of the market that you're seeing right now? Well, there's not there's not very many pure silver miners out there, and I haven't done as much digging into the margins of pure silver producers. A lot of times, silver is produced on the back end with gold, so. Metals aren't necessarily when when you mine them. Rarely do they just come as one metal itself. They're you know they it's like gold or silver, gold or copper. Uh, you know there's a combination of them when they're mined and then they're separated through the processing through the process and the metallurgy. Uh, so it, it it that's a harder one to do. I mean I I I think margins for silver miners are still pretty good right now. Obviously they'd be a lot better, twenty five dollars or more. Um, but, uh, the sentiment towards silver right now isn't terribly great. Uh, the, uh, you know, where it's, I think, uh, gold could see another side down, but I think silver probably is inevitable here. Another couple of dollars down before another move higher. So you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. You know, uh, when we talk about that, I look at uh, gold as, the, as almost the pure precious metal. Silver has a relationship to industrial use and into what's going on in, in terms of the economy. So, you know, going back to that whole inflation thing, and when you talk about uh, copper and tin, well, let's look at copper first. Uh, you know, Dr. Copper was uh, spiking earlier, but it sort of trailed off. Uh, do you think that uh, this has legs, this rally in uh, commodities? And what are you seeing in the commodities mining sector? Uh, copper is a true supply crunch right now. Um, there's a couple of things happening on the back end uh, that unless you weren't really paying attention that uh, you might miss. If you're just looking at the price, we're seeing consolidation still around or above that $4 a pound. Um but this is kind of an important deal because we have a lot more demand for that for copper as a metal than we have supply coming online. So if you so if if, if we're looking at um, let's see, so came out uh, traffic girl came out and said we're going to need no excuse me. It came out and said we're going to need ten million more tons of copper to meet demand. Now that's not something you can just press a button and turn on 
what we don't have is enough supply coming online via mines to meet that demand. Where we're at now, given feasibility level studies of bigger copper production projects that haven't yet been built, $4 copper seems like needs to be the foundation. Anything below that makes a lot of those projects hard to build because we're talking billions of dollars to build just one project. And then you have to, you know, that you're talking about almost a decade to get these copper projects built. So the worry is, even if, say, tomorrow you were able to finance the building of some of these projects, you're looking at almost a decade to get them built. And then where are we going to be in this metals commodity cycle 10 years from now? So that strengths, that strengthens the supply argument for the demand. Behind that, what we're seeing right now is actually an interesting story on the smelter side. Copper miners come out, they produce a concentrate, give or take 60% in the concentrate of copper. The rest is made up of stuff you don't want, not copper. So what we're seeing is they take those to the smelters. And then through that, the real story is the treatment and refining charges to the copper smelters. So treatment charges an important source of revenue for smelters. So they're paid by miners when they sell the copper concentrate. Uh, so the the, the uh, semi-process or those concentrates are then refined into the metal. Those charges typically go down when the concentrate market market tightens and smelters have to accept those lower terms to secure their feedstock. That average cost of treatment charge historically is around $60, $70 per ton. It's trading as low as $10 right now per ton. So right now, smelters are willing to take that low payment because they're betting on a higher price of copper, that that copper is going to go up because it's not necessarily, it doesn't, it doesn't do them to take that low of charge. Like it's, it's not economic for them unless they're betting, betting that price goes up. So that statistic alone shows we have a very, very tight copper market, especially in the concentrate from the miners to the smelters. So more than 2 million tons of annual smelting capacity will be on maintenance in the second quarter as well with a couple of smelters in China. So you're taking that offline. So, so you know, when I'm thinking about it from an inflation perspective, uh, who's using this copper? Uh, what's the, what's, what are the demand characteristics underneath that, uh, that would, that would, you know, seep into uh, inflation expectations? Electrification is the most conductive metal in the world. If you want anything electric anywhere from new energy to infrastructure, copper wiring, technology manufacturing, it all uses copper. So while we're talking about increasing production and getting uh, technology in all many sorts of forms, it's going to take this metal to get it. I mean, we just saw Tesla raise their prices on the cars. And it, I mean, it's it's the most obvious case of why companies that produce things that use raw materials such as copper are going to have to increase their prices. It's just It just happens to be it. But this comes back to the supply-demand crunch. There is a massive supply crunch happening in metal. And it's it's 
just completely obvious. There's not enough coming online to meet the demand. And now you're talking $3 trillion in infrastructure spending in the U.S. I, I would right. argue that as it's... <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, people it, it, people might not like to hear it, but three trillion to get done what we want to get, what supposedly Biden and the administration want to get done, isn't enough. Especially if you have rising costs of goods such as copper. Well, you know, when I spoke to you uh, in preparation for our uh, spot here, you also talked about ten as well in terms of a supply demand imbalance. What's going on with the uh, the ten miners? Yeah. Uh, so tin, when the commodity cycle was basically moving downward and downward and prices were lowering, lowering, there's less incentive for exploration, right? So fewer companies were spending money on exploration throughout the world. And it's kind of come to a moment in time where you know, chickens come home to roost. We have right. zero supply. Zero supply of tin. Tin for people who are interested, like, you know, why do, why do I care about tin? Tin is actually the glue used for metal. So it is used to glue, say, circuits and uh, electronics boards, you know, the chips to the boards. Uh, it's, it's soldering is an important uh, aspect of manufacturing to put one metal to the other, which typically wouldn't bond together in the first place. So thanks to this positive growth forecast and electronics and green tech and 5G robotics, like all this new advanced levels of manufacturing, solder usage remains to be in demand, which means tin continues to be in demand and incredible deficit. The spot price of tin right now, well, since the beginning of the year has risen 25%. It is in crazy backwardation. In London, I think cash spot price is about $25,000 a ton. Three-month forward futures contracts at $28,000. So it's – and there's not enough supply coming online. There's no tin to meet the demand. Any tin that is mined and manufactured, it's going straight to the manuf- – it, it, that's going straight to the uh, uh, technology manufacturers. So it's evidently – there's – I'm, we're hearing reports that there's some metal available in Asia, uh, predominantly ma- uh, countries that produce tin, Malaysia, uh, Myanmar, Indonesia, uh, Congo. There's no tin production in the U.S. or North America for what I know. I think there's some in Brazil, South America, Bolivia. Um, but there's, you know, the grade is important. Types of the tin metal is important. There's just not enough being produced to hit the market. And so we're seeing a massive crunch here. So there is reports that the uh, Defense Logistics Agency is prepared to start selling some of their stock to the market. I think they said they have like 4,000 tons. It's not enough. It's absolutely not enough. Yeah. So, I mean, if I could uh, wrap what you're saying into a bow, Basically, if you look at some of the most important markets that are out there in terms of, you know, the future, uh, we're talking copper, we're talking tin uh, in particular, and let's leave aside precious metals for a second. We're looking at uh, a supply-demand imbalance, which will keep these markets elevated for some time to come. 
Uh, yeah, I would say 10 years. It's a long time. You because you can't just turn on a mine. It doesn't. It doesn't work that way. I mean, you're talking a decade to build, to even get into production, delivered to the market in the first place. Uh, you're talking about exploration work that just doesn't happen overnight. That takes years to define what kind of resource you have in the ground and create a mining plan and then finance those projects to get them built. Um, but this is all when exploration work has been completely underfunded for a generation. This is this is the time where it's going to start paying the price. And unfortunately, markets and the consumers are going to eat through it in the way of inflation and higher prices. Well, Trevor, I think we're going to have to leave it there for right now. Uh, too short a time, but, uh, you know, let's have you back on to talk about uh, the mining space a little bit more. Uh, you know, I want to talk about some of the junior miners. I want to talk about oil as an input, what's going on there. Uh, I want to talk about nickel, a lot of different things that we can talk about. It all starts there, doesn't it? <laughs> Definitely. All right, thanks thanks again. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.